You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So I don't know about you, but whenever ominous scriptural texts get read and then we say the word of the Lord, I always feel like, thanks be to God, I guess. You know, every once in a while you feel like that part of the liturgy doesn't really work here when we have to sort of say thank you for God destroying the world, you know, uh, Jesus coming back and sowing judgment. And so it's a really heavy text, really heavy set of texts that I'm going to preach, especially the one from from Matthew today. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word tonight, chiefly by doing two things. We ask that you would show us our need for Jesus, and then we ask that you would give him to us. Amen. So we're in this journey through Matthew, through the discourses and teachings of Jesus, and Here we are at the end of Matthew where Jesus says some really powerful things. And I don't know how it rubs you. Maybe you're just tuning out because, you know, we're an ADD generation and to try to survive that long in a passage that long takes too long. And so your mind is busy thinking about other things. Or maybe there's kind of some sort of psychological fight or flight response when you hear Jesus talking about the end of days and the things related to that nature. Um, but this particular section of scripture has been called, variously called, the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and this mountain overlooked Jerusalem. In fact, it was just on the other side. If you exited Jerusalem on the east, you go down a little valley and then it rises. And that mountain there is, is uh, the Mount of Olives where a lot of significant things happen. Things will happen a little bit later in a narrative where, where Jesus will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's as they sort of exit the temple and walk up this mountain that Jesus starts teaching his disciples these really ominous and powerful teachings. It's also rightfully called Jesus' apocalyptic discourse because, well, he's speaking about the apocalypse. He's speaking about the end times. And this, along with a handful of other passages, like the passage we read actually from Daniel 9 and all the way through Daniel 11, then passages in First and Second Thessalonians and some other places, are sort of the key bodies of texts where we get the Bible talking to us about the end times. And since the dawn of time of people looking at these texts, honestly, it's generated more heat than light. It's generated more heat than light because people have kind of bent and used Scripture in all sorts of ways to fulfill certain agendas, or people have used it to maybe match up with news headlines or, or things to, to make them create some connections that helps them to know, hey, I'm living in this time as though this is some sort of, you know, like Masonic order type book that's giving us some secret language. And we start to treat these passages of Scripture like codes, to decipher, as though God has given us an encrypted message, and if we just read our Bibles and read the news headlines and behaved really well and prayed a lot, we'd be able to crack the code. But two things are happening when this approach is taken. First, 
we get sidetracked because typically when we're going on that approach, we tend to focus on secondary issues. But second, we hold the real message of this passage at arm's length. We treat the Word of God as something that we kind of analyze and play with rather than the Word of God that analyzes us and makes a claim on us. And maybe there is a bit of psychology in that because when we hear Jesus talking about the final judgment and those very hard things, it's very natural that we'd want to go, I don't, I don't know that I want to hear it. It's much easier for me to distance myself and analyze this and pretend that God is sharing some, some secret code with me that I'm supposed to crack. But when we do all this, we're actually dodging the Word of God and we're resisting its good work in our hearts. And the Word of God here really seeks to sort of burrow into the cracks of your heart and blast it open. But the passage does need some explanation, so I want to briefly work through it with you. The context, again, is Jesus with his disciples going up the Mount of Olives. It says Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point to him all the buildings of the temple. And then they ask him some questions. And Jesus' discourse about the end time is the answer to these questions. And that's why it's important that you understand, what are they asking? Jesus says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you that there will not be one here, one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So they're asking a pretty direct question because they sense Jesus is sort of giving us signals that he's getting ready to leave or he's getting ready to do something really important that's going to hasten this apocalypse that we've all read about in our Bibles, you know. This is what the disciples are thinking. We've read about this. You're the one. You've said it's coming. And so tell us about that. And his answer is this discourse. The tricky part the part that's really vexed scholars for generations, and then the part that, honestly, I won't be able to fully answer for you right now, is that we've come to realize that Jesus is mixing prophecies of the end-end with things that are going to happen to his very hearers within their lifetime. So he's talking at about A.D. 30, and he's prophesying things that history has told us happened around A.D. 70 especially when we get to verses 15 to 22 where Jesus is referencing Daniel 9 and 11 and the, quote, abomination of desolation. Most here agree that Jesus is prophesying something that will happen 40 years after, like I just said, in A.D. 70, when Rome would march on Jerusalem and would utterly destroy the temple. Jesus was saying that those in Judea would flee in a sudden and dramatic way and that it would be hard for pregnant women and women with babies because the fleeing would be so sudden that children would be vulnerable and that the trial and the tribulation of all this time would be great. That's what he said to the hearers. And we know from history, from actually a non-Christian historian named Josephus, just how true Jesus' prophecy was. When Rome laid, laid siege to Jerusalem in A.D. 70 because of the resulting famine, because of the laying of siege. There was such a panic, Josephus reports, that the starving people, this is how desperate they were, the starving people began to eat children. Once the temple was finally destroyed and burnt, it was reported 
that in the fire, the gold inside the temple melted into the cracks of the overturned rocks and rubble. And so all the Roman soldiers turned over those rocks to find that gold, really fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that no, stir, no stone of the temple would be left unturned. But this section of Matthew isn't all about the apocalyptic events of just A.D. 70. There are big things that Jesus says which obviously have to do with the absolute end of days, or maybe the beginning of the end of days, this big A apocalypse. Jesus talks in verses 30 to 31 about the appearing of the Son of Man on the clouds and about the final gathering in of his elect from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is talking about his second coming. So again, this whole passage is really messy to interpret. We could spend hours and hours in the speculative weeds here, but then I would be teaching a class on biblical prophecy instead of doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is prophetically preaching the word of God to you and to me. So to get at that, we might simply ask of tonight's text, okay, what are the facts? What can we know? And I want to zero in on two, two things which Jesus is making plain for us. First, Christians of every age, of every age, will experience difficulty and tribulation. We can expect that being a Christian won't be easy. Jesus says in verse 9 that Christians will be delivered up to the tribulation, even put to death, that he says, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And you know what? This runs really counter to preaching today that says if you become a Christian, life is grant. And really the Christian life is one of health and wealth. If you're just faithful and if you follow Jesus, he's going to shower you with blessings like some divine vending machine where I put in my good works and my faithfulness and he spits out all these good things to us. And Jesus, Jesus shatters that that's a biblical idea when he says, when you follow me, there's going to be trial and tribulation. And maybe even here, some of us in, in Birmingham who may not necessarily know the tip of what it's like to be a Christian in the 21st century, our suffering, the things that we go through, the oppression that we feel, is all part of what Jesus says is this kind of apocalyptic experience of the people of God. Trial and tribulation is something that we should expect as Christians. But secondly, the second fact is that Jesus will return again, fully and finally, and his coming will be sudden, obvious, and universal. Verse 27, Jesus says, As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, we learn from Jesus' teaching here that His second coming will be sudden. It'll be like a lightning flash. It'll just happen. His second coming will be obvious. From the east to the west, it says. Everyone's going to see it. He will be coming on the clouds with power, it says. His second coming, thirdly, will be universal. It won't be a secret. In fact, just opposite of his first coming, he won't be coming as a baby in an insignificant town in a forgotten corner of the world. 
How does this work geographically that he's going to be seen in all places at all times? I don't know. The earth is a globe, right? How will the whole world at once see him? I don't know. But somehow, according to Jesus, everyone on this sphere at once will see the obvious spiritual and physical manifestation of a mighty Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so with these two facts before us, especially the second, which we summarize in our creed as, I believe in Jesus Christ who will come again to judge the living and the dead, I want to pose to you a dilemma, or rather a trilemma, that's sort of famously given to us by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. On page 56 of Mere Christianity, he says this, People often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, like he says in Matthew 24, would not be just a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at, his, at your face, on your face, and at his feet, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher that is not left open to us he did not intend to see jesus when he makes prophetic statements like he does here in matthew 24 we're forced to reject as plausible the mainstream american idea that jesus was just a great moral teacher or a great civil rights leader or a lover of human beings or an activist surely he is those things but he is more than those things, and he is not merely those things. Lewis's trilemma, it poses a question to you and to me tonight. When Jesus claimed that he would come again to judge the living and the dead, you only have three options, maybe four, on how to respond to that claim. You can say that Jesus was a liar, that what he said there was just apocalyptic mumbo-jumbo like some other guy like David Koresh or Jim Baker or one of these other figures who was just a liar and who died. You know, you can say that Jesus was a lunatic, that he actually believed what he said, but he was crazy. You could say that. Or some people add an additional L here, that the Jesus of the New Testament was really a legend because what we have recorded in the Gospels, you might say, is just myth. It's just made up by people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. People like that who, who claim that, that, that Jesus said these things when he really doesn't. And yet, there's lots of great historical and archaeological and scientific evidence to prove the opposite. We don't have time to go over kind of the body of what's before us about the historical reliability of the Gospels. But we have here something that's pretty powerful in the New Testament that gives us good warrant to think that what's recorded here is what he really said. So either he's a liar, and I don't think that Jesus is a liar, or he's crazy, and I don't think he was crazy. 
And if he's not those things, then he must be Lord. And if he's indeed Lord, and he's making these claims, then you have no choice. Your whole life must be reoriented around this man and the fact that this man will come again to judge the world. And to get really personal and maybe to get really uncomfortable, Jesus isn't coming to just judge the world. He will come to judge you. And he will come to judge me. Individually you. And individually me. As mean and maybe even as cruel as it is right now, I'm going to ask that we sit in the discomfort of that for a brief moment. There is resolution, and it's glorious, but we need to talk about a few more things. With all that's been said, we can simply ask, why did Jesus give his disciples this word 2,000 years ago? And why does he give us this word tonight? What kind of response is Jesus trying to elicit? It's certainly not that the disciples or we are trying to map out in fine detail when and how he's going to come. That's the whole point of Jesus' teaching here, actually. He's trying to blow away any idea that we have some code to crack. Remember verse 3. The disciples came to him, and the text notes that they came to him privately, right? They wanted secret knowledge. They wanted the code. They wanted the roadmap. They wanted to be the privileged insiders who really did know what was going on. But Jesus wasn't interested in giving them or us any kind of secret knowledge. He wanted his teaching to cause us to be ready. You see, Jesus' teaching doesn't end with our passage. Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 24 and 25, through parables and just through plain teaching, no one will know the hour. Your job, the reason I'm telling you this, is so that you will be ready. So what does this readiness look like? Three things. We are to be ever listening, ever loving, and ever looking. First, readiness comes by being ever listening. How do we listen to the Lord? How do you listen to someone else? You station yourself where they speak. So if we're going to listen to the Lord, we want to station ourselves where God speaks. We want to put ourselves in perpetual earshot of where God is. It's like the prophet Habakkuk said when he said, God, I'm going to station myself right here on these ramparts and wait prayerfully and faithfully until I hear you speak. Where is this place that we go? How do we put ourselves in perpetual earshot of God? It's before the Word of God, the Scriptures. We listen for God where He has chosen most plainly to be heard in His Bible. And therefore, readiness looks like reading and studying and digesting and memorizing and receiving preaching and praying and gathering in the worship around the Word of God, ever listening. Secondly, readiness for His coming looks like ever-loving. Because the Bible says that God's future kingdom is marked by these things, by peace and by justice and reconciliation and love of neighbor and cultivation of the earth and art and beauty 
and even, yes, God's moral law. To be Christians who are about these things is a sign of our readiness for that kingdom and that coming king. When we are about those things in our vocation, and all our vocation, whether or not you're a minister in the church like me, all vocations feed into that kind of readiness when understood in these kingdom ideas of peace and justice and reconciliation and love of neighbor. Our readiness is manifested in our pursuit of these things and in the way these things contribute to the love of our neighbor, so ever-loving. And third, readiness for his coming looks like ever-looking. Here's where I want you to pick up again the anxiety that you have felt when I told you earlier that Jesus was coming to judge you and to judge me. As I prepared for this sermon, I was reading lots of commentaries and books on this passage and on the end times and on Jesus' second coming. I will tell you it was downright frustrating. So many of these scholars and commentators, as they were digging into the minutiae and the technicalities of what Jesus was saying here in the context of biblical prophecy, they missed the main point. Jesus' main point, Matthew's main point, Paul's main point, and the Bible's main point. Reader, I have a question for you. After Jesus finishes his apocalyptic discourse here, after Jesus finishes talking about the end times, after he gets done talking about his final judgment, and take note of this language, when the sun will be turned to darkness, and there will be earthquakes and split rocks and the gathering and rising of people, what does Matthew record that Jesus does next? Jesus prophesies the apocalypse, and the next thing he does is he goes to a cross and he dies. And how does Matthew describe that crucifixion? Chapter 27, verse 45. When it was noon, when the sun was at its highest and brightest as it could possibly be, and Jesus hung on the cross, he says there was darkness over the land. Verse 51. The earth shook and the rocks split. Verse 52, tombs were opened and the bodies of saints were gathered in rows. And I ask you, what is happening at the cross? Your final judgment. Your final judgment is happening at the cross. The cataclysmic day that Jesus prophesied, when he would come on the clouds to judge you, for all your rebellion against Him, the very God who created you, that future day, the Father takes the verdict of that future judgment, guilty, and pours out the fullness of that verdict in judgment on Jesus Christ instead of you. Whereas in the final judgment, Jesus would be the judge and you and I would be the guilty and accused. On the cross, the judge becomes the judged. And all the wrath, all the consequences that are rightly stored up for you and for me on the day of final judgment have been diverted, fully and finally redirected to the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. You see, readiness looks like ever looking.
at the cross, at the cross where your final judgment has taken place. Fleming Rutledge, who's coming here next week, this is what she meant in her book on the crucifixion when she said that the cross itself is the definitive apocalypse of God. That's the only way that we can make sense of Jesus' final words on the cross that's on that banner up there that that angel is holding. Those blessed three words. It is finished. What is finished? Your final judgment. Your judgment. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian here tonight, or maybe you're somewhere in between, If this word from Jesus about the final judgment, this prophetic word from the one who is neither liar, nor lunatic, nor legend, but Lord, if this word from Jesus has you convicted tonight and puts you in its crosshairs, flee to the place where your final judgment has been rendered not on you, but on another. Flee to the cross. Cry out for mercy. Hide yourself in Christ in the calm, cool shade of the cross, on the other side of the blast of the final judgment. There's freedom there. There's life there. And as you pray, Jesus, I take hold of your cross. I hide myself in your perfect life and in your saving death. You can hear the voice of the judge from his very word say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you rest in that blessed apocalyptic shelter, when Jesus does come again on the clouds in power and glory, his only words to you will be, welcome home. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.